It was roughly around 155 AD. In the midst of a tyrantial, horrible time period, you suddenly had Rome pressing down on a particular group of people and a man sat huddled in his home, sitting there eating from the little scraps of food that he could get. This man, at about the age of 86, huddled, looking over various papers and things that he had as his little oil lamp continued to glow in the room. Off in the distance, an echo started shouting, away with the atheists, away with the atheists. The Colosseum had been packed full for days and days on end as the proconsul of Rome had begun to drag these various atheists into the Colosseum and begin to actually put them, sewing them into various animal hides and tossing them down for the spectacle of watching them be torn open by various animals of putting them in gladiatorial events where they would drop their swords and their things and just willingly die. Oh, the bloodlust was huge and everybody loved it. And yet... Here this man was, one of the atheists, sitting huddled away, trying to hide. Little did he know the proconsul has found his servant. And that servant had been tortured and had revealed the location of this man, Polycarp. And as the proconsul sent the guards, they burst into this small chamber. They found this man sitting there. And as he turned to them, he simply said, if it is God's will. Yes, these atheists weren't like our modern day atheists. Rome had called Christians atheists far before they called them Christians because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. And here this man, Polycarp, a bishop of Smyrna, had been arrested and now was being taken to that very Colosseum where so many Christians had died. And as he walked through those doors, there was said by many Christians who were there that they heard a voice crying out, um, be strong, Polycarp, play the man. And as he walked in, he then stood before the horde of crowds in the Colosseum and the proconsul looked down at him and said, listen, you're an old man because you're old, because of your age, I want to give you your freedom. You simply have to say away with the atheists and deny Christ. And Polycarp looked up at the crowds and he went, well, away with these atheists. Made a stern stuff. Eventually, the proconsul looked at him and said, no, I'm going to give you another chance. This is your last chance. Renounce Christ and take up Caesar, and you will be saved. And I love this. The response that is given, according to the, according to the legends and the stories that have gone on, he says this, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? It was those words that sealed Polycarp's fate. And they brought in a large bunch of wood and they set up a huge pyre and they set it on fire. And he said, hey, if this is what it's going to take, they put a stake in the middle. They're going to literally drive nails through his hand to keep him on the stake. But he said, no, no, my God will give me the power and the strength to stay in the fire for I'll only be burned for a little while, but all of you will be burned for eternity. And suddenly, as he sat there, he stood amongst that fire, and the fire didn't burn him up. It, it licked all around him so, so long that, in fact, they had to take a spear and stab him through the heart to kill him. And so ended the life of Polycarp the bishop. 
That's really interesting because as we think about this is only 155 AD. This is only a few decades after the existence of the apostles, after all the things we've been looking at in the book of Acts and all of this, the church has been growing and growing and growing and with it have come growing pains of various sorts, right? We've had growing pains of, of arrests through miracles and we've had growing pains in the need for boldness and growing pains of integrity issues. We've seen the growing pains of the need for leadership. There's all this growing pains that's been going on. And the growing pains continue today. In fact, in 2019, we know that 2,625 of our family members, Christians, were jailed simply for their faith in the 50th, 50 most um, uh, persecution uh, places of the world, the basic countries that are against Christians. In fact, in those 50 countries, 4,136 Christians were martyred just in 2019. That is 11 of our brothers and sisters every single day. How in the world do we go from the gospel exploding in Jerusalem, tens of thousands of people coming to faith, to where today 4,136 Christians are being martyred every single year, at least in 2019, 11 a day, showing us that, you know what, something's gone on. The gospel's moving. And when the gospel wins, unfortunately, someone's going to die. When the gospel is being successful, when the message of God begins to win, somebody is going to die. We see this. In fact, we see the beginning of this happen right here in this final section of our Growing Pain series in the book of Acts, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verse 8 and all the way through the end of chapter 7. So hold on. We're going we're to go through a lot of text and we're going to look at a lot of stuff, but hang in there. We'll be able to get you through. So I'd love for you to grab your Bibles, open up there to Acts chapter 6. While you're doing that and you're opening your app or whatever you're getting involved in, just, just so you know, if you're new with us, the book of Acts was originally a scroll of two scrolls written by a man named Luke. He was a doctor who had gone around with the Apostle Paul, the church planter. And as he worked with him, one day Apostle Paul was arrested and the church planter um, was was put away and Paul, Luke got the opportunity, asked by Rome, a Roman uh, official to write these two documents. And he took these two documents in hand and he created the history of the church we know as Acts, first 30 years. We've been looking at that. And what we've been seeing is that this growth has caused all kinds of growing pains, right? We have the growing pains that we saw last week of the need for leadership. As the gospel grows, then so do needs. And as needs grow, we need leadership. And th thank you guys for those of you who stepped up to step into some of those positions of volunteering and leadership. And this week, we're going to see the final growing pain, the pain that is just so huge. And it begins here in verse 8. It starts off fairly well. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Sirens and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. And so what we're seeing here is that this guy, Stephen, who was one of the leaders we saw last week picked up and brought in, has now become a great evangelist. He's beginning to really make waves and he's beginning to show people there's miracles happening with his hands and he's beginning to engage with Greek-speaking Jewish synagogues. And so where he was a Greek-speaking Jew and he was helping out with the Greek-speaking widows, now suddenly there was this rise up of these synagogues. They were, they were arguing with him, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
And that's the case. He, he has just understood the word and he's preaching the word and people are coming to faith and he's getting into conflict and he's able to handle it. I mean, he is a successful person. But remember, like we said two weeks ago, when success happens, trouble is coming. When success happens, trouble is coming. And so it picks up. This, these, these synagogues, these people, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came to, upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, hey, this man ceases, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We'll just pause right there. Notice something we've already said twice, that they had to get false witnesses, that they had to get men who were gonna speak and instigate problems for Stephen. Stephen had a good reputation. And I hope us as Olive Branch, when we're out there and we're, maybe we were doing Love Week as we were celebrating over last week, or maybe we're, it's the service that you're doing here at the church. Maybe it's over at James Project, or as you invite people to Easter, I would love you to do it with the best of integrity. I would love it to be that we are the kind of people that they would have to discover a reason to actually make up against Olive Branch because we are living after Jesus with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, that we love him, we live for him, and we share him. And this is exactly where Stephen was at. They had to make stuff up to stop this guy. And so they make this up, false witness, they drag him in, they set him before the Sanhedrin, and so we're back in the council room. We've seen, been here three times. Remember, you can, you can think of it on one side of the wall over here. We've got all these seats in the backside, like bleachers and all the other side. All these various places are filled. And right there in the center, you're going to have Stephen drug in and set before them. And all these false accusations are being made. They said, we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So this is, this is huge stuff. He's saying, listen, we believe that he's going to end our way of Judaism. We need to stop this guy. And so they gazed at him. And all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I have no idea what that means. Does it mean it's like a little baby face? Does it say baby face? Or is it like, he's like, holy. You know, just like sitting there. And he, or is it he's glowing? We have no clue. What's the face of an angel look like? But it implies that he is holy. He's connected with God. I mean, he's a messenger of God. And so he's going to begin to defend himself. They actually give him the opportunity again to speak to this council to defend himself. But here's the thing. This time when Stephen's going to engage, it's going to be radically different. See, these guys have heard this message three times already. They have already heard about Jesus. They've already been told that, hey, you guys, you're the ones who sinned. You're the ones who crucified him. You're the one who is guilty of this man's blood. And Stephen is going to stand there and he's going to have the conviction and he's going to have the courage and he's going to have the love that we all talked about that we all need to have. But this time, again, it's different. Their hearts are hard. I'll tell you what, if you've ever tried to engage with a hardened hearted person, it's, it's a really difficult thing. Um, only a few weeks ago, my wife and I, we were in, a, um, in to get some vaccinations or, or something like that for immunization shots for overseas travel. And while we're sitting there at Loma Linda, this guy sat down across from me and he starts engaging me in conversation. I was trying to get some stuff written. And what was really interesting is he's engaging me. And he looks at me and says, so why are you going? I'm like, oh, well, you know, we're going to go visit a friend over in Indonesia and all this stuff. And, and he goes, oh, well, I'm going on a medical mission trip with this church. I'm like, oh, wow. He's like, ah, I was born in the Lutheran, all this stuff. And I'm like, okay. He's like, 
have you ever considered Hinduism? I'm like, where is this coming from? And so he sits there and he leans forward. He says, you know, at the Council of Nicaea, you know, Constantine leaned over on the table and he looked at him and said, you know, have you all heard of Krishna? Because Krishna is the greatest God that's ever existed. And I'm going, uh, I've studied the Council of Nicaea. I did not read that in the notes. You know, that just didn't happen. And so I tried to engage him, but he wasn't wanting to be engaged. He was wanting to tell me all about not just Krishna, but all about his heritage as a Native American and blame me for their being pushed out. And then he got into European history and then he got into like all kinds of, it was just all over the map. At one point I tried to interject, just to ask some questions, just to talk to him back. And he just wouldn't have it. He wanted to talk. He was not going to listen. He had been through that Christian thing before. He wasn't going back to it and he wasn't going to listen. He was going to try to save me out of it. And it's the difficulty with hard-hearted people. They already know what they want to believe. In fact, the best example of what then Stephen is going to do is what we're all doing as we give the gospel out. As you and I give the gospel to our neighbors, as you and I give the gospel to our friends, as you and I give the gospel to our family members, what we're doing is we're basically setting up a recipe that's going to reveal the heart. In a very real way, we're going to take ingredients, we're going to be tossing them into a bowl, we're just going to put them together, and as we put those ingredients in, we're going to be stirring it up, and whatever is stirred up from that gospel is ultimately going to come out of their heart. And in this case, it's a lot like what happens when I make my kids certain meals. You know what I'm talking about? Or my wife does. My wife will take all these ingredients. Ingredients my kids love, mind you. They'll put chicken. They love chicken. You put oranges. Oh, they love oranges. Oh, you put some sugar in there. You put a little bit of vinegar and stuff in there. Maybe they don't like that as much. But hey, you put this stuff together and you turn it into a glaze and it looks good. It's got some cornstarch. You mix it all up and you get orange chicken. And you think my kids would love it. They love oranges. They love chicken. They love the flavors. They love the, all the different stuff. Oh, no. The second it comes out cooked up, they're like, and they like do the fake gag reflection. I'm talking about where the kid puts in their mouth. They haven't even tasted it yet. Not even made it in their mouth. They're like, it's awful. And they love this stuff. They would love it if they tasted it. But they have made up their mind they're not going to listen. That's exactly what we're going to see with Stephen. In fact, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to summarize this next chapter, but we're not going to read all the text because there's just a lot to go through. And what I need to do is, is kind of move us through this. But Stephen's going to put some ingredients together and he's going to bring a message that's going to open the hearts of the Sanhedrin to reveal really what's inside. And it starts off with a promise to Abraham. He takes a little bit of Abraham and he tosses in. And this is how he says, he then turns to the Sanhedrin after they, they say, what, what do you have to say for yourself? And the, he says, listen, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into that land that I will show you. Then he will. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So there's a promise. Abraham is given a promise and he goes, okay, I'll go. And he says, but you didn't see the, the, the promise come through. You're going to have to wait. It's going to come to your offspring later. Um, in fact, he goes on to say that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge that nation that they serve. And God said, after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And so he gives them the promise. He says, you're going to have a people. They're going to go into this land. They're going to serve there for 400 years. The next step is they're going to come out of that 
after I've punished that land, and they're going to come back here, and they're going to worship me. The promise of God is given to Abraham. So Stephen takes that little recipe, tosses in a little bit of Abraham, says, here we go, promises of God, and God was faithful. In fact, the majority of what he's going to talk about now is really this man, Joseph. Now, we're not going to repeat all of Joseph's story, but we do understand that Joseph begins in a bad situation. He says, speaking of the patriarchs, he says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Mark that. You know, trouble always comes when there's jealousy. And the brothers were jealous of Joseph, hinting at something. Luke's trying to get our, Dr. Luke's trying to get our attention. Remember back the last time the Sanhedrin was jealous of, of the apostles. They arrested them. In fact, they resisted them. But here, the patriarchs, they were jealous of Joseph. They sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So here's a guy who's been rejected, but now he's been made king. Huh, where have we heard this before? It's the gospel. So he throws in a little bit of Joseph. Talks about how they all got into a famine, came back, and Joseph reveals himself that he's the leader. And then it goes, but as the time time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt a king who knew, who didn't know Joseph. And so now we make the transition. The time of God's promise, where they would be freed, came near. And so a new king rises. And so he begins to tell the story of how all of this comes together. When it was when this king came about, it says he he, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And so now we get the beginning of the story of Moses where they're going to take this baby and they're going to put him out into the water to be killed by the crocodiles to be exposed. And instead, Pharaoh's daughter takes him up, raises him in her own household. He becomes knowledgeable, all, knowledgeable of all these various Egyptian things. And now the story continues that when he was 40 years of age, It came into his heart to go visit his brothers, meaning the Jewish people, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Note that again. Here's Moses, rises up, he's going to give him salvation. They don't get it. They don't see it. In fact, what happens next is he approaches two Hebrews that are fighting, and he says, guys, you're a brothers. What are you doing? They say, who are you to tell us what to do? Made you king. Get lost. You're going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? At which point Moses flees into the wilderness, Stephen reminds us, and it's there that he runs into the angel of God in the burning bush, and God begins to give Moses an instruction. He tells him, I will send you to Egypt. We pick back up now with Stephen, and Stephen puts it this way. This Moses, it's a pretty interesting, Mark. When somebody stops and reminds the Sanhedrin that this particular Moses, not another Moses, not some other guy that you know as Moses, because there was probably a lot of Moseses at the time. No, this Moses, whom they rejected, underline it, circle it, mark it. That's the key. They rejected, huh, Joseph? Out of jealousy, sold and rejected. Moses rises up, he's pushed away and was rejected. No, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man. 
God sit as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Huh, rejected, became ruler. Rejected, became ruler. Pattern? Yeah, pattern. And so he says, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, note this, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. A prophet like me, one who's gonna be rejected, who's gonna rise up, who's gonna be king, who's gonna do miracles, who's gonna lead us out, Israel. He's gonna be our leader. Hint, hint, right? It's Jesus. And so, Stephen's really focused in and says, hey, Moses gave us the law. Moses gave us this, this, this great stuff. But you know what? Our fathers refused to obey him. But they thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. In other words, Moses is gone. We're going to worship other gods. We're rejecting Moses again to worship other gods. Hint, hint, you're rejecting somebody to worship something false. Hint, hint, this one who's become king. Throws a little bit of Joseph now in the pot. Throws a little bit of Moses now in the pot. Starts to stir it up. Starting to foment. You can hear it as it's rumbling through the room, murmuring, frustration. What are you talking about? We know this history. Why do you have to tell us this? What's going on here? He's going to throw one more thing in now. Moves on from Moses, starts to talk about the temple and addresses this fifth ingredient. He says, hey guys, guess what? You guys are using this temple all wrong. You want to tame God. You can't tame God. He says, our fathers had a tent in the wilderness and just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he'd seen, our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And so we go from the tabernacle, which is this place that could move about and spread all over the place to a permanent home, right? This place called the temple, Solomon built it. And then goes on, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. Stop trying to locate God in one place. He used to move around a tabernacle. He used to be free. He was down in Egypt where he's working. He was in Haran where he's talking to our father Abraham. We only got to worship him at the temple, right? Okay. Don't limit God. In fact, he goes on to say, as the prophets say, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? In other words, thank you. I believe in the temple too, but God's going to make his own temple now. By the way, there was this king whom you rejected who rose up and now he's going to make a temple. He's going to be prepared. This guy Moses promised, hey, listen, he's talked about this, but what are you doing with Jesus? And now he makes the punch. He stirred it. It's about to flow over. He's going to put it in the oven and it's going to pop and the hearts are going to come out because he aims it at them in the very pointed fashion. He says, you stiff-necked people. It means stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. 
you're just not listening. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which, are your pro- which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? By the way, all the prophets, um, according to tradition, died in Jerusalem by the Jew- hands of Jewish men or somewhere in Israel by the hands of Jewish men to stop the prophets from speaking their prophecies. And so they came and they killed them. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels, you didn't keep it. You are your, the sons of your fathers. Do you not hear me? Joseph rises up because of jealousy, made him king. Oh, Moses, jealousy, push him out, made him king. Jesus, out of jealousy, you push him out and God's made him king. You need to repent. Well, this was enough. He stirred it up and now there's gonna be a, ra- a reaction. There's gonna be a reaction of rejection of the hardened heart. Because you know what? They are like that meme. You ever seen that meme out there with the, pe- the, the, the pineapple pizza, right? This whole time making dough, spreading it out, putting all this beautiful stuff on it and all the sauce and then the cheese everywhere. It looks real good. And then you start sprinkling pineapple all over. You watch it go in the oven and it's cooked in the oven. They pull it out and they take out the cutter and they start cutting it in perfect, nice cuts and everything. They take it and they just dump it right into the trash because that's, that's how you eat a pineapple pizza. It's the same thing that they are doing with the gospel. They put it all together and what do they want with it? Nothing. Goodbye. Just don't want it. It's junk. I want to warn some people in here today. If you've been around the church long enough, you've been listening to the gospel long enough, rejection of God hardens the heart. Rejection of God hardens the heart. And you've listened to the message that Jesus loves you. You've listened to the message that God loves you so much he would bear your sins on the cross. You've listened to the, the, all the proofs that, that there are prophecies that have laid it out. There are proofs that Jesus rose from the dead. There are miracles that have been done that you've seen and you've heard of. There are all these answers to prayer. You see people's lives that are changed and you're like, nope, can't be, don't want to hear it. You've made up your mind already. Your heart is hard. And I warn you because God will one day be done with you. He will be done. His patience cannot last forever because he says it won't. Instead, what we hear is this. Jesus warns us. He says, take care how you hear. In other words, how you're listening to obey. For the one who has, the one who gains knowledge, the one who has more will be given. And from the one who has not, the one who is ignoring that teaching, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. You, if you're garnering, gaining, and you're living it out, God will give you more. If you're not, God will take it away. It'll shut down. Your heart will be hardened. Please do not let your heart be hardened. Please listen that God loves you. He sent his son Jesus to bear your sins, your moral failings on the cross, to save you. This is the message that's going on. Don't reject it. Don't let it go. And I know it's hard because when the message is clear, someone will die. When the message is clear, someone will die. In this case, the Sanhedrin wasn't willing to die to themselves. And so they attacked Stephen. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. It's just bubbling over now. There's just a big old mess. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They just charged him, drug him out of the city and then stoned him to death. In the meantime, they're throwing down their jackets at a young man named Saul who we'll meet later. You see, when the message is clear, someone's gonna die. In this case, Stephen died. He made the message absolutely clear. He drew the line as sharply as he could. He put it in their court to do something about the rebellion, about the rejection, and they chose instead of dying to themselves, as Jesus calls every one of us to do, they would rather kill the messenger. Hardness of heart requires that we die to ourselves to tell ourselves in all of our brokenness and all of our sorrow and all of our sin and all of our muck to say, you know what? I'm willing to say goodbye to my desires, my goals, my whims, my lordship, my authority. And I'm gonna turn, I'm gonna follow Jesus. I'm gonna go to a new life, a new direction. And that's not easy. And so either you're gonna die to yourself or something else will die. Now, out in the globe, that sometimes means that person literally dies. We have family all over the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are dying for their faith because of the message of Jesus. For us, to be quite honest, we may not necessarily go through that. We may actually have relationships die. We may get defriended on Facebook or unfollowed on Instagram, or we may get some trolling done or some doxing done by, on Twitter, and we may have to go through some painful situations. But hey, here's the bottom line. Something's gonna die. They're gonna throw you out. They're gonna reject your relationship. They're gonna end the conversation because when the gospel wins, someone's gonna die. And when that happens, we need to stand with those who are gonna die. We need to stand with those who are being martyred because they are being stood for by Jesus. See, we stand with the witnesses. We stand with martyrs because Jesus stands with them. Notice what it says. It says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's pretty incredible that Jesus is normally depicted as sitting at the right hand of the Father. In this case, he is standing. He is supporting. As it says in the book of Matthew, he told his disciples, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And what he's saying, what we have here is Jesus literally giving a standing ovation, a standing ovation to Stephen. He's giving a standing ovation to those of us who are standing firm in our faith in the midst of the worst kind of cost, the ultimate kind of suffering. And so we need to stand with our fellow brothers and sisters as well. How do we do that? First, let's stand with them in prayer. It is a simple thing. We can simply connect and know what's going on in the persecuted church nowadays. We have so many opportunities. In fact, there's a couple great websites that you go out and go out and, and garner information about the persecuted church. And that is Voice of the Martyrs. Check them out. You will have plenty of information. In fact, they just really want you to pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. The same thing is, is Open Doors. They have an entire thing called the World Watch List. And, and right up here, what I want to show you is, is the top 10 countries that is causing the greatest amount of persecution. And as you look at those 10 countries, what I want to do is take one minute in this service and do what we just said. We're going to stand for the martyrs. We're going to stand for our persecuted brothers and sisters. And we're going to pray for them. So would you do me a favor right now, where you're at, just bow your head and pray over these brothers and sisters in these 10 countries.
God, we do. We pray over these countries. We ask that your blessing would go to our brothers and sisters who stand firm in North Korea, who are standing firm in India, who are having the difficult times in all of these different countries that we see. God, for the 50 different countries that are out there, Lord, um, where our brothers and sisters are feeling pressure at home and they're fearing pressure from government, we ask that they would be faithful to stand firm. They don't ask God to be set free. They ask to be faithful. Thank you for them. We ask your grace upon them in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. So we're gonna stand, we're gonna stand in prayer. But another way that we can stand with our fellow brothers and sisters is by sharing the gospel, the very gospel that they're dying for, the very gospel that they're suffering for. We can use our freedoms to share it more. We can use our opportunities to get the message out. And when we share them, we need to share like Jesus would. That's exactly what Stephen did. Jesus shared it like Stephen would. First of all, that just means we should be sharing, whether it's our neighbors. Remember, we wanna make our neighbors our friends, our friends, our family, and part of that connection when we, when we make friends is really to have that opportunity one day to be able to share the message of Jesus, to be bold about it, to bring that information to them, to be bold to bring it to our workplaces, to be bold to bring it wherever we go so that we could love, live, and share Christ again wherever we go. But our attitudes, they need to match the love of the gospel. See, Stephen matched it as he's being killed. He literally forgave all of those people. It says that he prayed, God, do not, do not put this sin against them. And that is an incredible thought. The, the, he was willing to, to think the same thought as Jesus. That God, these people are harming me, but I love them. I care about them. In the same way, that's what we need to be able to do. That when we're being harmed, we're being ignored, we're being trolled, when we're being persecuted, when people are dying, we need to be praying for those people, blessing them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who harm you. Do not curse. Our job is to pray for the salvation of these nations and the salvation of these people and to preach that message with the same kind of heart, a heart of love. We need to be ready for something to die. If we're going to really get the message out there, if 200,000 people surrounding us are really going to come to the place where they know Jesus Christ, we're going to be, have to be ready for something to die. Be them relationships. Maybe it's a sacrifice of some kind because we're not going to necessarily have to die, but something does. Maybe it's a sacrifice like Jesus gave. Maybe it's a sacrifice of, of our lives. But maybe it's a sacrifice of another kind. Maybe it's a sacrifice of our time. Maybe it's a sacrifice to go and continue to meet up at those various convalescent retirement homes to care for people and build those relationships. Maybe it's an opportunity to continue to go visit the veterans and hear their stories. Maybe it's an opportunity for us to step up into the ministries that we're doing and pour ourselves in because we're going to sacrifice some time. Or maybe it's going to sacrifice some of our pride. Or maybe it's going to sacrifice some of our, our, our fears on the altar that Jesus could use us. So we're just saying, God, I'm going to talk to that person. I'm going to care about that person. I'm going to go to that gym. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to bring that message you've told me to do. But it's going to take some kind of sacrifice. Something's going to die. And I want you to trust that God will use that sacrifice. You see, I don't believe any martyr has ever died that God didn't use greatly. In fact, the term that was used later in history was that the, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. Wherever somebody's willing to die for Jesus, it was so obvious they loved Jesus 
people came flocking to it. It's the very opposite of Muslim, of the Muslim image of martyrdom, where they're willing to kill themselves to kill others. Our vision is not to kill anybody. Our vision is simply to preach a message of love, that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die, and that we might have to image that very message ourselves. See, that's why it's powerful. When Stephen died, God used it. It crept into the heart of a man named Saul. I believe it continued to creep in to the hearts everywhere as people watched these Christians stand firm and the gospel exploded across Rome so that by an, in a couple hundred years, Rome would be known as a Christian empire. That's incredible. But it's because they were willing with all of their life to reveal and show off the very gospel. And that's the message that we want to walk away from in this series, we've been looking at it, the growing pains require one thing, that we would live the gospel, that we would live it even if it cost us the ultimate price. I don't want to let the annals of hundreds and thousands of faithful men and women who stood for the gospel to be lost on us. I'm not asking us to give up our lives today. I'm asking us to preach the gospel. And if it comes to that place, I pray we would stand firm and we would show our love by giving our lives. I hope that's where we're at as we follow Jesus because that's where pages and pages and pages of Christians throughout the centuries were as they were challenged. And that was the power that spread the gospel way beyond anything that we could imagine. Yeah, it's a call to go through the growing pains as a church grows, but that call is to love beyond the pain. And I pray that God would teach us and lead us as we go through this, the rest of this year to, to continue on in the growing pains and to allow that love to challenge us to go further and further for the name of Jesus. Would you bow your heads? I want to challenge you that maybe today is the day that you need to receive Jesus. You have had your heart too hard, but God is softening it. He's telling you, I love you. I gave my son to die for you. I gave you prophecies to show it. I gave, I gave you the word of God. I gave you evidences. I gave you changed lives. Today, do not resist him. Today, receive him. Right where you're at, you can do that. You simply reach out to God in your heart and say, God, I know that I have failed morally and I ask that you'd forgive me. I ask that you would allow my failures to be put on Jesus and that I can now have a relationship with you. I trust that Jesus died on the cross to give me a new life. And I want to follow him now, every day, all the way through eternity. Soften my heart and forgive me and lead me now, I pray. In Jesus' name.